Chapter 8 Here by the Owl Months later, after the war was over, Agnes was shopping in the grocery store in downtown Harrisonburg, Virginia, when she happened to pass by the magazine rack near the store's entrance. Some things in the grocery store had changed since the fighting in Europe and the Pacific was over. There was more butter now, for instance, and even some sugar, too. Shelves that had been empty were now full again. Ration cards were gradually falling by the wayside, and smiles were more common on the faces of the staff in their uniforms and their customers, too. But the one truly dynamic portion of this little storefront in the middle of the country was that magazine rack near the front. Amidst checkout counters and bins of vegetables, the magazine rack served as a window into the rest of the world. Every one of the shoppers in that grocery store was lucky enough to live in a time when advanced technology granted them almost immediate access to the most up-to-date information. They got to grab glimpses of the latest news across the globe, with its potential for bloodshed and horror, as easily as grabbing a loaf of bread off the shelf, slipping them into grocery baskets alongside sticks of butter and cans of beans. They'd all gotten very matter-of-fact about it. In early May, magazine covers had run the news that Hitler was dead, his thousand-year regime lying in ruins all around him. The war in Europe ended a few weeks later, when the town was fully in bloom and school was getting ready to let out. That week, the covers of the magazines in the rack showed people dancing in the streets of New York, American GIs posing on the roofs of gutted Nazi palaces, and little kids waving American flags from the backs of pickup trucks in small towns across America. Outside the grocery store, on the sidewalks of Liberty Street, children skipped by the windows, young mothers pushed babies in strollers, and old folks smiled for the first time in years. Summer arrived, and with it came the arrival of more trains rolling into town, full of young men returning from Europe in their crisp uniforms. It was a surreal thing to see them strolling down the streets now, after so many years when the sight of a healthy young man was a rarity. High school girls in their jumpers blushed whenever they saw one coming down the sidewalk. The charming young men tipped their caps and smiled. Other men seemed blinded and wandered aimlessly, blinking in the unfamiliar sunlight of normalcy. That year's 4th of July celebration was the most festive in decades. President Truman gave a radio message honoring America's creed of liberty and the men and women of our armed forces who are carrying this creed with them throughout the world. Agnes and her family celebrated the holiday with a cookout in their backyard. When they went for a walk through the neighborhood later that afternoon, Agnes pushing little Agnes Gray in a stroller, they passed by quiet homes with gold stars in the windows. Change had come slowly over the last half year with the war, with the weather, and with Agnes herself. Winter had felt like a half-awake nightmare. She just about blocked it out. The nights and days sick in bed, nauseous and swollen. The pain in her limbs, the pounding in her head. The disassociation from reality. She had thought bringing the baby home from the hospital would be the end of the worst part, but it was only the beginning. Virginia had been in the grips of an unceasing cold. Liberty Street had been frozen over for weeks, Dirty snow piled along the curbs. Nights were especially brutal. Pipes were freezing in homes all over town, and the coal shortage would not let up. The furnace in their own house was barely being used. Agnes had resorted to using hot water bottles wrapped in cloth and placing them around Agnes Gray in her crib to keep her warm at night. Even so, the baby usually cried until morning. When she wasn't crying, Agnes would be down at the stove in the kitchen, boiling more water to refill the water bottles to keep her warm. She didn't have a full night's sleep in weeks. I am truly getting concerned about my mind, she told her family. Soon she couldn't even write to R.G. to tell him about her trouble, because she simply wasn't physically able to do so. In February, 
Her hands and feet began swelling three times their normal size, turning her fingers and toes into plump sausages, unable to bend easily. Nothing to worry about, said the doctors. A common side effect, they said. Should remedy itself soon enough. Meanwhile, it made gripping a pen and writing a letter all but impossible, and taking care of the baby just as difficult. When changing diapers, Agnes might as well have been wearing oven mitts. Making her way down the stairs at night to refill the warm water bottles was a terribly slow affair. Standing by the boiling kettle, a painful feat of endurance. She had to pull up a chair and sit as the water boiled. And filling the bottles, all but impossible, for she couldn't even grasp the handle of the kettle, couldn't screw the lids back on without help from her mother and sisters. After a few tries at wobbling back up the stairs with her swollen feet, the bottles tucked under her arms, she gave up. Agnes let her sisters and her mother resume as the baby's primary caretakers, while she returned to painful hibernation in her bedroom. Weeks went by. All through those cold gray days and freezing dark nights, she had felt as though every bright color from the world had been wrung out, as if from a dirty rag, leaving everything limp and useless. She didn't read any of R.G.'s letters. She barely saw her daughter. Her sisters kept pumping milk from her. She hardly even noticed the weather changing. The sound of bird song in the morning or the lengthening of the days. But one morning in March, as the curtains at the window marinated in warm sunlight, Agnes had woken up feeling slightly better than she had the day before. It was hardly noticeable, as though someone had simply removed a few pounds from a hundred-pound bag she'd been forced to carry. But the next day had been just a little easier, a little lighter, and so, too, was the day after. Agnes knew not to put much stock in it. She'd been through cruel swings of good health before, which had lasted just long enough to convince her she was finally improving for good, only to plummet her shortly thereafter into another bout of horrific illness. So, in a strange way, the improvements only increased her anxiety. As she watched her swollen hands and feet begin to deflate back to their normal size, the first thing she did was fold her hands together to pray her spirit wouldn't be broken again. The temperature continued to rise with the waning days of winter, and mornings now Agnes was able to slide the bedsheets off her body and step down onto the floorboards without any sharp pain shooting up her legs. She could wiggle her toes again, could clench a pen in her hand without effort. Then spring arrived. Windows were slid open, a warm and fresh breeze exhaled through the house. For the first time in months, Agnes wrote her husband a long letter and didn't wince with each pen stroke. I've heard tell that you shouldn't live in the past, she told him. But when I think of all the fun and joys we have had in the past, it, it makes me that much more anxious for the future, when we can be together forever and ever. You are with me wherever I go. Even though we're far apart, you are always in my heart. But even as her strength grew, Agnes never managed to feel like herself again. As good as it was to be moving around, she still felt changed, and despite her best efforts, that old sense of herself never returned. Her hands and feet looked different, for one. Parts of her body were scarred, transformed, heavy in some places, fatigued and frail in others. At times, she felt like a stranger inside her own body. She even wrote to R.G., warning him that he might not like the woman she'd become, with her stretched skin and bloated stomach and how she couldn't fit into old clothes because of her expanded waistline. I would not worry about that, R.G. wrote back. By the time I have squeezed you so tight for so long, your waist will probably be at an all-time minimum. He told her it didn't matter what she looked like. 
He just wanted to see her again. You are already so perfect in every way, he said. And Agnes tried her best to believe him. As much as she fretted about the changes in her body, people around town noticed a different kind of change in Agnes. By the time spring had slid into summer, whenever she went for a walk around the neighborhood, Agnes became the subject of gossip down the street. It was an odd deja vu feeling that reminded her of those years back in McGackiesville as a young woman walking to and from college. Since it was early summer, all of the windows of the homes along Liberty Street and downtown Harrisonburg had been flung open to the breeze, and anyone who happened to glance out and spot Agnes in her pretty dress, with her healthy baby in the stroller, did a double take. She looked very much like the subject of a Norman Rockwell painting, a beautiful young mother out for a healthy walk in the summer air, wearing a fine new dress, while her plump baby gazed with wonder at the blossoms in the trees, sucking on a pacifier. All winter, rumors down the street had said Agnes was near death. She was a frail creature, they said, who sulked in cold darkness, and her daughter was no better off, a skeleton baby with no chance at life. For them both to then bloom so vividly in the sunny light of the window frame in summer was enough to become the topic of dinner table conversations all down the block. Later that summer, when her husband became famous, that only increased the gossip about the young Mrs. Shipley. Agnes, for her part, would have said famous wasn't the right word for it. But even she had to admit it was a funny thing to see R.G.'s team and their mission featured so much in the national news, especially when she herself hadn't anticipated it at all. In early August, she was in the grocery store, passing by the magazine rack, when she happened to spot the cover of the latest issue of National Geographic, which made her whip back so hard, she almost kinked her neck. Greens grow for GIs on soilless ascension, read the headline on the cover of the August edition of the magazine. Agnes dropped her grocery basket and grabbed the edition off the rack and started flipping through its pages. R.G. had mentioned offhand in a letter a few weeks earlier that some reporters from the National Geographic had made a pit stop on the island, but in classic R.G. fashion, he hadn't mentioned anything about a story on the hydroponics team, Yet here were pages and pages of photos, of her husband and other men hunched over beds of vegetables, of hills and mountains of ash, of giant turtles glowing in the sand and blizzards of snow-white birds filling the sky, along with 12 pages of detailed reporting on the mission of the hydroponics team, which the magazine called the Army's Latest Triumph. Look at Ascension Island and you can appreciate why the growing of green vegetables here makes news, wrote the reporter W. Robert Moore. Virtually the whole area is as devoid of vegetation as the dump pit of a furnace. But thanks to the magic of hydroponics, W. Robert Moore was able to witness an abundant harvest, soldiers enthusiastically piling lettuce leaves between slabs of bread to make a huge fresh sandwich, while others feasted on the bounty of cucumbers, tomatoes, radishes, and green peppers. When speaking of R.G. and the rest of the team, W. Robert Moore called them chemists and valve turners, rather than men with shovels and hoes. He described them as modern-day alchemists who had created life from the ashes, using ingenious potions of potassium, phosphorus, nitrogen, calcium, and magnesium, all with very little water, and all by designs they'd engineered and constructed on their own, while dealing with on-the-fly challenges to bring to life the broad strokes of theory, despite no preordained blueprint nor detailed strategy. They'd fought off armies of rodents and pests, which would have liked to have devoured the vegetables for themselves. 
They'd even called for a shipment of honeybees to be brought by airplane from Brazil in order to pollinate the crops, knowing what was needed for sustainability. Over the last half year, they'd achieved nothing short of a small miracle. Thanks to the success on Ascension Island, the U.S. Army was now in the process of establishing a formal hydroponics branch. New hydroponics farms would be built on the islands of Iwo Jima and Okinawa in the Pacific, in the Japanese city of Chofu on the western side of Tokyo, and even in far-flung locales like Iraq and Bahrain in the Persian Gulf. Within just a few years, the army would be on track to grow more than 8 million pounds of fresh produce a year through hydroponics. But perhaps most notably, for the star-struck American public back home, RG and the guys had even gotten to rub shoulders with a real Hollywood celebrity, Kay Francis the former number one star and highest paid actress at Warner Brothers Movie Studios, had arrived in a lavish entourage and spent an afternoon setting lettuce in the beds with the guys on the hydroponics team, squatting right beside Argie as she smiled and slid her hands into the earth. Kay Francis was not so wonderful. Not that I ever thought so, Argie later wrote Agnes, as if to reassure her he wasn't so enamored by celebrity. Besides, he added, they say she is 47. Argy may not have thought much of the attention, but back home in Virginia, it was the talk of the town. Over the coming days, whenever Agnes left the house, people walked up to her to say they'd read about RG in the magazine. They stopped her at church, outside on the sidewalk, in the aisles of the grocery store. She would just smile and nod and say it was a swell write-up, thanking them for mentioning it. It was a fine thing, the glow of local celebrity. A fine thing that lasted exactly one week until it was outshined by the glow of an atomic bomb. On August 15th, the magazine covers on the rack at the grocery store announced a complete and total victory against Japan, after the United States had dropped two atomic bombs over the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing hundreds of thousands of civilians in two radiant blips. Just about every magazine devoted its entire issue to the news. Inside that week's edition of Life magazine, Alongside ads for Chesterfield cigarettes, Firestone tires, Listerine shaving cream, and Lifesavers candy, columnists debated the significance of the moment. The people of the world, although thrilled by peace, were shaken by the new weapon which had brought it about, one columnist wrote. A close-up photograph of the man who had directed the atomic bombing of Japan, General Carl Tui Spots, was featured on that edition's cover, a grizzled, hard-boiled man with a lit cigarette stabbed between his teeth. Agnes saw the man's face sitting on her family's coffee table after her father had finished reading through the copy that night. Wouldn't it be an odd thing, Spots told the magazine, if these were the only two atomic bombs ever dropped? When Agnes's father shut off the lamp to head to bed that night, darkness fell over Spots's face. By autumn, Agnes got a letter from R.G. with news that he would soon be heading back home. New guys were being flown to the island, he explained. They were being replaced. He was finally put on a plane in early November and flown back to Brazil, and from Brazil, hopped on a flight that took him to the United States. But he wasn't sent home, not just yet. Instead, the Air Force Command had one last big task for one of the members of the famous hydroponics team. He was flown to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, where he was honored for his groundbreaking achievement in agricultural science by being put to work doing just about any menial task the Air Force could find. Scrubbing toilets, mopping floors, laundry. He'd become a janitor. Talking to him on the phone, Agnes said it sounded to her like a dirty deal after all their success. And R.G. had just laughed into the receiver. Sure is, he said. Sure is. 
Agnes couldn't be upset, though. For the first time this year, she'd finally gotten to hear her husband's voice. Now that RG was on base in Ohio, they'd been able to speak over the phone at least once every few days. Agnes would hold the phone up to their baby daughter's ear while RG sweet-talked through the receiver. She even got Agnes Gray to mutter a few giggles and gurgles for RG to hear her voice. By the time Thanksgiving rolled around, RG said it would only be another few weeks until he'd be sent home. We'll have Christmas to look forward to, he wrote her. Agnes wrote back saying it'd better be the last holiday they'd ever spend apart. A few days after Thanksgiving, she made another trip to the grocery store, walking down Liberty Street in the afternoon sunlight. The leaves in the trees had faded, the street a sepia-toned version of itself, pumpkins and squash on the stoops, and the shoppers who stepped through the entrance of the grocery store ahead wore sweaters and long dresses. After following them inside, Agnes made her usual pass by the magazine rack once again, where all the latest editions of the Saturday Evening Post, Good Housekeeping, Colliers, Time, Harper's, National Geographic, and Life were spread out, their bright covers arranged to catch the eye of browsing shoppers. Most of the magazine covers were still Thanksgiving-themed. The cover of Good Housekeeping showed a cute little girl with curled hair holding a fork and knife, bouncing in her chair as she waited for her Thanksgiving turkey, while the Saturday Evening Post featured a Norman Rockwell painting of a returned soldier in uniform and his mother peeling potatoes. But the cover of that week's edition of Life magazine had nothing to do with the recent holiday. Nothing to do with anything, as far as shoppers like Agnes could tell. Instead, the cover showed a picture of a beautiful young blonde woman, posing with one hand placed delicately on her thigh. The woman wore her hair tied up in a bun, her plump lips smeared with glossy red lipstick, while her impossibly tiny waist was cinched tight by a large black belt. The one and only headline on the cover read, Big Belts. It was hardly worth stopping to take another look, especially for Agnes, who had spent enough time over winter worrying about her own waistline without needing this model to make her feel bad too. So she walked right past it. She paid for her groceries at the counter and then exited the store, thinking nothing of that skinny blonde girl and her big belt. But how terribly strange it would later seem that the editors of Life had decided to put a fetching blonde gal on the cover of a magazine that spent the bulk of its pages explaining how the world was about to end. And strangest of all, how Agnes's own husband had played a part in it. Whenever he got to the edge of the city, R.G. was met with a flat ocean of raised farmland rolling in the distance, the golden waves of high corn having been buzzed away for harvest a few weeks before their arrival at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Now he saw wagons pass by in those barren fields, far away like lone boats drifting on the ocean horizon. Once again, he felt like he was on an island. But life at Wright-Patterson had its improvements. It was autumn, for one, and the air was cool, and the trees offered so many shades of color, the golden leaves dripping with rain some days, rustling musically in the breeze on others. Instead of bomber planes roaring across the sky over the ocean, he saw birds drifting in smooth flight patterns as they headed south toward warmer weather. R.G. hoped he would be joining them soon enough. For now, a few nights a week, he talked to Agnes on the phone. He told her he was confident he would see her before Christmas. The plan was for her to drive down to the farm in Watauga in early December, get settled at the brick house, and meet him at the bus station later that week in Boone. Until then, he'd remain on base, scrubbing toilets, emptying trash cans, and mopping floors. All the while, a part of him still wishing he were back on the island. It was hard to put into words, 
And it wasn't the work here on base either. Scrubbing toilets wasn't so bad. R.G. had dealt with much worse back on the farm, although a base full of soldiers did give the hogs a run for their money, slop-wise. But that wasn't it, no. It was something else, something even he didn't quite understand. When he'd been on the island, all he'd wanted was to be back in the States. Now that he was so close to home, he found himself walking down the halls of Wright-Patterson with his mop and bucket, and his mind would wander back to the hydroponic station. How it felt to wander down the rows of vibrant tomato plants with the sunlight slanting through the mosquito netting, touching the leaves with his fingertips, breathing in the smell of them. He still worried over how the plants were doing. Now, in this metropolis of more than 300 buildings intricately weaved together into one elaborate complex, with some 50,000 enlisted men flowing through its arteries, R.G. stood in the middle of it all and thought about roots and nutrient solution and propagation. It was a habit he hadn't yet unlearned. From January to October, a full ten months, it had been his entire life. Then they'd uprooted him and dropped him down here, in this labyrinth of cold steel and lifeless concrete, handed him a mop, and told him this is who he was now. It was hard to believe he and the rest of the hydroponics team had been on the cover of National Geographic a little more than three months earlier. He missed the guys. Narji hadn't gotten to see any of them once he'd left the island. He wasn't sure where they'd all ended up. Earlier that summer, before the war in Japan had ended, while they were all still on the island, all the guys had figured they'd be sent off to the Pacific Theater for a massive invasion. For a lot of the fellows, it looks like they will go on to the Pacific, R.G. had written to Agnes in late June. It would suit us fine to be left out. Meanwhile, during those uncertain weeks on the island, they hadn't had much reassurance as to their fate. From the start of summer, Professor Blodgett had become a ghost, off on trips to Washington, D.C., and thence onward to British Ghana, just south of Trinidad, where a new hydroponics installation was supposedly being set up. There may be other people who will be sorry when the war is over, but I am sure he is not one, R.G. had written about the professor. He has been so afraid it would end and he would cease to be the great man he thinks he is. Without the leadership of the colonel, who had gone off on other business himself, the guys on the island doubted whether the professor could coordinate his theories into practice, so they weren't surprised when word came back that more assistance was needed on the project in Africa. First, the higher-ups told Jones that he would be sent off to Ghana. Then they took Buckley, R.G.'s tentmate. The guys in the tent all gave Buckley a grand farewell and told him to enjoy spending more time with the old man. A few other guys on the team heard rumors about possibly being sent to Roberts Field Airport in Liberia, where another hydroponics installation was starting up. Still others were sent to far luckier locales. Some of the hydro boys were sent to Honolulu for a project there and are having a grand time. R.G. wrote. All the while, he waited for word of what would become of him. In August, just a few days after the atomic bombs were dropped and Japan surrendered, a major by the name of Simpson arrived on the island with 16 new men who, R.G. was told, would serve as the replacements for the hydroponics team, although still he had his doubts. We've been told so many stories we don't believe them, he told Agnes. The only thing I want is to get home to you. By the end of September, a boat came through and took more than 400 guys off the island. But R.G. still had to wait nearly two more months before his exit ticket arrived. So it was that he found himself as the last one in his tent, alone at night as he had been when he'd first arrived. The cots lay empty around him. No trunks on the floor, no sound. 
By his feet were his warm moccasins, the heels of which were all worn out now by all the months he'd spent in them. Every letter he'd written to Agnes, he'd been wearing those tasseled moccasins. Every night goofing around in the tent, talking with the guys, they'd been comfortably on his feet. Now as he slipped on his moccasins and fiddled with the radio's antenna in the empty tent, he remembered a night from months earlier, just after the president had died, and a particularly strange moment that still stuck in his mind. It had been one of those late nights when all the guys had been listening to the final news broadcast of the day. News reports on the island came over the radio four times a day, first at 7.30 a.m., then just after lunch at 12.30, and right around dinner time at 5 p.m., with the summary of the day's events at 11 at night before the radio signal signed off. That night, because it was still in the first week after President Roosevelt had died, the 11 o'clock summary played a broadcast of a transcript of the late president's speech at Yalta, followed by a remembrance in Roosevelt's honor, and then the signal signed off. But no one had felt like sleeping, so one of the guys, R.G. couldn't remember now if it had been Kurt, Buckley, or Bill, had started messing around with the radio's antenna, and they'd all started joking about detecting alien signals up in the clouds. But then it wasn't a joke, because they really did hear something. A strange voice-like murmur began humming beneath the roiling surf of static. It made no sense. The radio broadcast on the island had been turned off. At first, they froze and just listened, confused. Voices surfaced from the static, then dove down again. With each small tap of the radio's antenna, other voices rose into clarity. They all heard it, different sounds, not random but distinct, like multiple conversations happening all at once in the same room. We picked up a program of Latin music, R.G. later wrote. Then we got a German program, so we thought, and then two or three other stations that were in Brazil or Africa. We just could not believe it. The guys didn't know such a thing was possible. They moved the antenna like a divining rod, finding other voices, other sounds. The radio waves having traveled over the ocean like skipped stones from Germany, France, Africa, Brazil. Voices from nations which were still at war with one another, talking all at once, in a small tent on an island in the middle of the ocean, while a group of guys who'd all grown up on farms without electricity sat in silence and listened. Now, alone in his tent, R.G. switched off the radio and lay back on his cot, hearing only the wind. As long as the wait was for news of his departure, when they finally told R.G. he was leaving the island, there wasn't much warning. One morning in November, they let him know that he'd be on the next plane, which would be flying out later that day. R.G. spent the next few hours packing up his things, his letters from Agnes, his souvenirs from the island, stuff he'd purchased at the PX, along with a pair of gator skin heels and matching gator skin purse for Agnes, which he'd gotten from a vendor back in Brazil and had been stowing under his cot ever since. He stopped by the post office and arranged to have his mail rerouted to Wright-Patterson. Then he said goodbye to some of the guys he knew who were still on the island and had one last meal in the chow hall. But just before heading to Wide Awake Field, where the plane was waiting, R.G. couldn't help but make one last stop by the hydroponics site. He found the new team of guys were hard at work, pruning plants and monitoring the nutrient solution, carving out new growing beds for the site's expansion. They were a good group who'd learned well, but none of them, R.G. felt, had known the plants the way he and the original team had. From the new guys' perspective, this flourishing greenhouse spread over 80,000 square feet had been here from the start. 
They hadn't known the ashen wind wailing through the emptiness of this field back when there was nothing here, or the back-breaking work of carving out all the beds from scratch, or the doubt over whether such a task was even possible. They hadn't tucked each plant into the beds by hand as they'd done, and they certainly hadn't lost any sleep over them. And how could they? None of them had even known this place had existed. When his plane finally took off from Wide Awake Field, R.G. looked out the window at the hydroponics site as they rose higher and higher. Obscured though it was by the cloth strips and mosquito netting, the exuberant green of plant life within was still visible, still beautiful, the only bright sign of life over a barren wasteland. He could see blobs of shadows moving under the covering, which were the men going back and forth as they tended to the plants, like monks at the monastery. And he realized... This is what all the folks in planes that had been landing and taking off from Ascension must have seen over the last ten months, watching their progress from above, just as the birds had done. How strange it looked. How wonderful. Then the plane turned toward the ocean's horizon, toward home, and he never saw it again. Life at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base that autumn was dull by comparison, but there were small surprises. One morning, R.G. was eating breakfast in the chow hall when a young man across the table made a gesture to get his attention. "'Aren't you from Boone?' the young man asked. R.G. said yes, he was. Well, born and raised in Valley Crucis, and now he ran a farm in Vilas, or he had done so before being drafted. But sure, Boone was close enough. The boy said he thought so. He was from West Jefferson himself and had attended school in Boone while R.G. had been a teacher there at the high school. Vocational agriculture was his subject, correct?' R.G. nodded over his breakfast tray. He didn't take agriculture and I did not remember him, R.G. later wrote Agnes. But the young man seemed to remember R.G. well from those days. He'd even asked about that famous cross-country trip R.G. had coordinated during the summer of 1936, the Southwestern Tour, as the newspapers had called it. His elaborate journey with all the kids in the back of a rattling Chevy truck, going from the Tennessee Valley to the Mississippi River, New Orleans and the Gulf of Mexico, and even crossing the border into Mexico itself. The young man still remembering the route by heart, evidently, which took R.G. by surprise even more than being recognized had. It was a conversation that stuck with him for the rest of the day. His memories of that southwestern tour returned more vividly than they had in years. He remembered the weeks leading up to their departure, the conversations he'd had with the parents, the favors he'd asked, the money he'd raised for the kids who couldn't afford it. And then after they'd set off, the messy plans and mix-ups on their journey, like the time one of the boys got lost for more than a day on the Mexican border, or when their trailer broke off and all their supplies went tumbling down a ravine. But all these years later, what he remembered most about the summer of 1936, during that time of poverty, hunger, and despair, was all the kindness they'd found at each stop along the way. The farmer who'd welcomed them onto their land and hosted a cookout, the shrimper who'd taken them out onto the chopping waves and introduced them to the ocean. The mother along the border, who had cooked them a full meal and treated each boy like he was her own. And the world of opportunity that had unfurled before them. A promise of a future beyond anything those boys could imagine. Now as R.G. pushed his mop down the halls of Wright-Patterson, he got to thinking of his old students again. Agnes had asked him what he planned to do when he got back to the farm. And it was true he had briefly thought about the prospect of returning to teaching. Even though he still harbored that old dream of becoming a veterinarian, the idea of returning to the classroom had been pulling at him, a gentle but consistent tug. 
He just wasn't sure. I have not decided yet what I want to do when I finally get back, he had replied. I think I will just wait and see what the score is on my return. When he thought of his old students now, he couldn't get over how strange it was that those mountain boys who had once sat in his classroom truly had, just a few years later, all been sent around the world. One old student sent off to the northern hills of France, another to the rain-bogged uplands of England, and still others in the factories of Detroit, the chopping waves of the Atlantic Theater, and the snow-capped peaks of the Aleutian Islands. And some sent to their deaths. It was so easy to remember a time when their stations in life had been purely symbolic, back when they had all stood in formation at the start of their future Farmers of America meetings, one of the after-school extracurriculars that were a part of the school's vocational agriculture program. The FFA meetings were a chance for the students to hone their skills, their values, their expertise, and their leadership potential as young farmers. As their FFA advisor, RG would stand off in the corner of the room and simply observe as they ran through the official opening ceremony. At the start of each meeting, the students all donned matching blue jackets, and they observed the ceremony with an almost meditative formality. It was the closest thing to a ritual outside of the church that any of these farm boys had experienced, as natural as breathing to those who partook, but likely as strange as a rain dance to any outsider. But so be it. First, the student president of the FFA would rap on the podium to secure order, and the group's vice president would run a roll call of all the student officers, making sure to refer to them by their formal station titles. The Sentinel, the vice president would call out. Speaking up like a soldier, the Sentinel would reply, Stationed by the door. Your duties there? asked the vice president. Through this door pass many friends of the FFA, the Sentinel would proclaim. It is my duty to see that the door is open to our friends at all times and that they are welcome. The ceremony would proceed, R.G. watching as the vice president called upon all officers and their symbolic stations. The reporter. The reporter is stationed by the flag, the reporter would reply. The treasurer. Stationed at the emblem of Washington, said the treasurer. The secretary. Stationed by the ear of the corn, said the secretary. The advisor. Here by the owl, said R.G., stepping forward from his spot in the corner. Back in those days, all those years ago, he'd only ever wanted one thing for his students. There were countless skills they needed to learn, of course, and techniques to master, theories to understand. But the one goal he'd been set upon during his years as a teacher had been simple. He wanted his students to be proud. For them to know that the worn soles of their boots and the tatters of their trousers were a sign of hard work, not poverty. That the early mornings and late nights on the farm were evidence of grit, not despair. And that the station of their birth, raised in a lineage of agriculture in the mountains of North Carolina, was as honorable as that of any president, movie star, or general in the world. To be a farmer was also to be an agronomist, a mechanic, chemist, accountant, marketer, engineer, person of faith, and more. It was, he told them in the classroom, just about the most important job in the world. That time and place was gone now, clear as ever in Argy's mind, but as distant as they'd all traveled from the mountains of their birth. Scattered across the world, some wounded, some gone forever, some changed in ways unseen. And yet even now, having spoken the words of that FFA ceremony so many times, R.G. could mouth them without even thinking as he pushed his mop down the dirty hallways of an Air Force base in Ohio. 
Here by the owl, he would say. Why by the owl? asked the vice president. The owl is a time-honored emblem of knowledge and wisdom, R.G. replied. Being older than the rest of you, I am asked to advise you from time to time as the need arises. I hope that my advice will always be based on true knowledge and ripened with wisdom. But now, to him, that seemed like a joke, a punchline. He'd only been 23 years old, barely out of college when he'd first uttered those words. A kid himself. What true knowledge could he have possibly known? What experience, ripened with wisdom, could he have possibly imparted? And after all these years of war, what could he say now to a group of young men who'd spent the prime of their lives fighting through carnage and bloodshed all over the world, while he'd been on some island in the middle of the ocean, gardening tomatoes and lettuce? Not to say he wasn't proud of the work the hydroponics team had done. They'd gone against daunting odds and had gotten the job done, true to their stations as farmers. But he also knew it would never be the stuff of a Hollywood movie. They weren't flying airplanes or defeating Nazis. They weren't torpedoing U-boats to the bottom of the ocean. They were just trying to grow some fresh food for the guys doing the real work around them. It wasn't altogether different from Argy's college years, back when he'd spent his days milking cows to ensure fresh dairy for the cadets. He and the rest of the hydroponics team had been like the men slopping food on trays in the chow hall, or the guys manning the booth at the post office, or the countless janitors, as R.G. was now, who kept the bases decent and functioning, playing a minor part on a grand stage. It was something to hang your hat on, but it wasn't anything the generals would applaud or even notice. Which is why it was all the more unbelievable when, later that week, a major feature story appeared in the November 19, 1945 edition of Life magazine. A story in which a four-star general not only noticed R.G. and the hydroponics team, but took great pains to tell the Secretary of War, the Joint Chiefs, and the entire nation about them, while warning of a nightmare ahead that could cast the world into eternal darkness. And a group of young men, quiet as owls, who'd been living in that darkness all along, without even knowing. Nothing about the cover of that edition of Life magazine gave any indication of the horrors contained within its pages. Big Belts read the headline on the cover of the November 19th issue, along with a picture of a blonde cover model posing in a stylish outfit. Nothing about the few dozen pages that followed gave any indication either that this edition of the magazine would be particularly noteworthy. Ads for BF Goodrich tires promised better synthetic rubber, different from the ordinary synthetic rubber in general use by the tire industry. Forehand's toothpaste claimed that four out of five Americans may already have gingivitis, warning that even slightly bleeding gums were a sure sign of a diseased mouth. General Electric offered a brand new radio with natural color tone audio capabilities, while movie star and phenom dancer Betty Hutton claimed that Bexel Vitamin B Complex Capsule Pet Pills were her secret to success, promising popularity, gaiety, romance, to become a blonde bombshell bundle of TNT like she was on the big screen. R.G. and the rest of the guys had to flip through all these advertisements and more, pages and pages of them, just to get to the major feature story in that week's edition. Finally, on page 27, beside an unintentionally ironic ad for the Prudential Life Insurance Company, the story announced itself with a photo illustration of Washington, D.C. being vaporized in a nuclear explosion, along with the headline, The 36-Hour War, Arnold Report Hints at the Catastrophe of the Next Great Conflict. 
What followed were 11 pages explaining the very likely end of the world, or at least the end of civilization, in the coming decade. It made the Prudential life insurance ad seem comical because, as far as the guys knew, insurance policies weren't all that reliable in a nuclear apocalypse. The feature story was arguably the most alarming article ever printed in Life magazine's history up to that point, a detailed outline of the coming nuclear war. What terrified everyone who read it the most was the source of the information. This was not some science fiction fantasy or the work of Orson Welles, but was, in fact, a beat-by-beat summary of the recently released third report of the commanding general of the Army Air Force to the Secretary of War, written by the commander of the Air Force himself, General H.H. Arnold. The very same man, R.G. remembered, who had once toured the ashen fields of Ascension Island. Addressing a celebratory nation, Arnold cautioned humility in the face of victory. At times, the margin of winning was narrow. Many times, we were near losing, he wrote in his report. Our enemy's mistakes often pulled us through. In the flush of victory, some like to forget these unpalatable truths. Now came the battles ahead. The start of another war, said General Arnold, might come with shattering speed, the article warned. The general's nightmares were illustrated in detail over the pages that followed. Volleys of nuclear bombs rising and falling in elegant arcs from one side of the world to another. Futuristic outer space airplanes bearing precision rockets orbiting above. Underground nuclear facilities operating like termite infestations. Men in radiation suits rummaging through the debris of Chicago. Dead women slumped in telephone operating rooms amid glass, coiled wire, and debris. Widespread destruction. Little hope for salvation. The danger zone of modern warfare is not restricted to the battle lines in adjacent areas, but extends to the innermost parts of the nation, Arnold wrote. His final assessment was bleak. No one is immune from the ravages of war. He told the nation that it needed to prepare itself for a world in which the atomic threat would be the driving force dictating global events for the remainder of the century, if not the remainder of time itself. To do so, General Arnold listed the most critical new concepts that would have to be fully understood and developed to enable survival through the now-terminal nuclear age. Those concepts were 1. The influence of atomic energy on air power 2. Jet propulsion slash rockets 3. Radar advancement But Arnold warned there was still no good defense against an incoming attack. Even if the U.S. developed a radar beam of enormous power to sweep the sky so objects thousands of miles in space would send back radio echoes, it would only give the nation about 30 minutes to get ready for an attack. But even 30 minutes is too little time, the general wrote. He knew the score. We should attempt to make sure that nowhere in the world are atomic bombs being made clandestinely, he said. But he was aware it was only a matter of time before the ability of an enemy nation to launch an atomic attack on the United States was not only possible, but guaranteed. When that occurred, Arnold estimated that 40 million people would die in the short term, and any city of more than 50,000 in population would be leveled. San Francisco's Market Street, Chicago's Michigan Boulevard, and New York's Fifth Avenue are merely lanes through the debris, the article in Life noted, the title of the magazine itself now seeming darkly ironic while the vestiges of American population lingered on the outskirts. And yet, there was one ray of hope. In spite of the apocalyptic destruction caused by its atomic bombs, an enemy nation would have to invade the U.S. to win the war, Arnold argued. So the nation would need to be ready for that scenario, 
a world in which the United States hunkered down and prepared amidst the ruined and barren wasteland, scattered across the ravaged outskirts or hidden underground. To do so, Arnold had listed a fourth and final critical new concept, one that was just as important, he said, as the nation's air power and atomic energy and radar sweeps across the stars. A concept the Air Force had already tested in a place that most resembled that apocalyptic future of barren soil, harsh terrain, and burned lifelessness. A concept known as... 4. Hydroponics. Ascension Island was picked as the first testing laboratory for large-scale cultivation of vegetables by hydroponics, Arnold wrote in his report. A party consisting of an officer, nine enlisted men, and a civilian expert landed on The Rock in January. A plot of land was taken over, and engineers began construction of concrete beds which were filled with sifted volcanic gravel. Seedlings were planted. A nutrient solution, containing the chemicals necessary for the growth of plants, was passed through the beds from two reservoir tanks. Four months later, these visiting farmers were harvesting tomatoes, radishes, lettuce, and cucumbers from an 80,000-square-foot area of facility. The success of those visiting farmers was so overwhelming that it would be repeated over and over, and God willing, all future American soldiers and civilians could also be able to repeat the process to survive in the ruins, if and when it came to that bleak outcome. Today, hydroponics is an accepted fact, Arnold continued, and will have its place in the post-war AAF along with other products of science and research. Chemical gardens will be established at all remote installations where fresh vegetables cannot be grown by ordinary methods. He ended his report on the hydroponics team with the following words. Important in itself, this development brings down to earth the need for a close partnership with science and for the courage and foresight to translate experiment into practice. For RG and the rest of the guys, making the cover of National Geographic had been one thing, being singled out directly by a founding father of the U.S. Air Force, on the other hand, well, that was something else entirely. As far as anyone could tell, it was the first and only time in American history that a four-star general had used the word courage to describe a group of guys growing tomatoes. In December of 1945, another early snowfall coated the southeast of the United States. Driving down south early that month, Agnes often found herself as one of the few cars on the roadway. Snow fell as she drove. She breathed quiet clouds of steam against the windshield. Other than the precious passenger asleep beside her, Agnes made the drive alone, more than 250 miles from Harrisonburg, Virginia, down to Watauga County, North Carolina. It was early in the day, and she took her time, going slowly down the roads through the continuing but light snowfall. She wore her winter coat and gloves, as the temperature was well below freezing while Agnes Gray wore a woolen cap on her still mostly bald head. Every few moments, Agnes turned to glance at her daughter, keeping her right hand up to ensure Agnes Gray remained steady during even the smallest of turns. The baby was seated in a comfortable setup in the passenger seat, her feet cozy in her fuzzy one-piece jumper. For once, she wasn't crying. The lullaby of wheels turning beneath her and the vision of swirling snow out the window had put her in a trance, and now she was deep asleep, milk drunk and drooling, and heading home for the first time. It was a few hours before Agnes reached the spread of the mountains that served as the entrance to Watauga County. But when she did, she saw the snow-covered peaks and drove onward into a bright and temporary world where everything glimmered and gleamed, as if undiscovered, passing through tunnels with icy branches bending and dripping like fresh rain in the glow. 
Shrubbery along the road had frozen as if in shock. Squirrels leaped overhead like dancers, the branches bending and shedding snow. Sunlight dazzled everything. She felt herself finessing the wheel and navigating through this beautiful danger, around tight curves and up steep slopes, down slippery spots of gravel and along cliffsides, just as R.G. had done on those cool spring nights when she'd first visited the farm with him all those years ago. Only this time, staring straight ahead with the wheel in her gloved hands and her baby beside her, Agnes didn't flinch. The house had missed her. Dust-coated stairwell banisters, coated furniture, shelves, and books, coated every spot on the floor that hadn't been disturbed by the footsteps of its lone occupant, R.G.'s father, Ed, who regarded Agnes with a silent nod as he proceeded to gradually vacate his presence from the house the moment she and her daughter arrived. Ed had spent the war living here in this house that had once belonged to his brother and now belonged to his son. Though still technically married, Ed was a bachelor now, more of a hermit. He lived among the cattle and the farm workers who lived on the land and was perfectly content with weeks, even months, of near total silence. Agnes wouldn't have been surprised if the man had used the same spoon, bowl, fork, knife, and plate over the years he'd been holed up here. It was doubtful that all but one of the chairs at the kitchen table had been moved by his hand since Agnes had left this house years ago. A housekeeper had attended to the house during that time, but with the harsh weather, the upkeep had been neglected over the last few weeks. Ed still occupied one of the bedrooms in the house until R.G. arrived here, but he was out from sunrise until sunset, working the fields and tending to the livestock in the snow, warming himself in the barn by smoking cigar after cigar, and he drafted through the house like a ghost when home, lavishing the air with the fragrances of burly tobacco and earthy muck as he quickly barricaded himself in his room. He rarely spoke, and this was fine by Agnes. She had enough work on her hands bringing the house back in shape and caring for the baby. Silence was something she savored. The wind outside howled loud enough. On her first night at the house, a light snowfall had fluttered outside in the fields, and snow had kept on falling ever since. Tuesday night was fierce, and we had no electricity from 5.30 Tuesday until about 12.30 Wednesday, she wrote R.G. Last night was terrible. I nearly froze. So hurry home. I miss you so much. Agnes felt like a pioneer, holed up for the winter. The cold weather continues in this area, with Mercury Tuesday and Wednesday morning standing at slightly below 10 degrees, noted the latest edition of the Watauga Democrat. But this morning there are evidences of clearing skies, and hopes are that the cold wave which began a week ago may be definitely broken soon. Much of the snow which fell the first of last week yet remains. Meanwhile, life went on. Down the road at the Boone Demonstration School, the elementary school children were preparing for their program of Christmas music planned for Sunday, December 16th at 2.45 in the Boone Baptist Church. Parents and friends of the school are cordially invited to come and hear the children render the story of Christmas in carols, read the invitation. With the continuing snowfall, travel was difficult, but the invitation added, It is hoped that the parents and friends of the children will make a special effort to come. While the snow piled up in the valley and the mountains, one Mrs. W.M. Burwell speaking on behalf of the Boone Bird Club, expressed hope that the people of the community and county will think of the birds during the snowy weather when food is unavailable and place bread scraps and other food where the songbirds may eat it, the Watauga Democrat reported. Mrs. Burwell also respectfully requests that the boys refrain from shooting or otherwise destroying the birds. Agnes had little time to read the paper. She was too busy dusting off the cobwebs of a home that had sat idle for far too long, brightening up rooms, cleaning grime, 
doing all she could to banish a lingering odor of decay that had been marinating the air for years. She smacked rugs as if she were relieving anger. She fought with the scum and muck that had accumulated in sinks and toilets, and she spent hours polishing the dining room table. I have worked up a storm with heaps still to be done, she wrote R.G. And Agnes Gray doesn't appreciate, had to pull her pen out in the dining room so she could watch. She looked at me so funny. When she wasn't scrubbing floorboards or wiping down countertops, she was looking after Agnes Gray, who seemed to be adjusting poorly at first to the new environment. Our wee one hasn't been feeling so good the last couple of days, has had diarrhea, and for the life of me I can't figure out any reason for her pest, Agnes told R.G. Thought she was better yesterday afternoon, but she took a turn for the worst last night and neither of us slept very much. Changed diaper all night. Gave her some medicine, crackers, and water, and she's feeling much better this afternoon, and I sure hope she sleeps tonight. The poor little dolly has circles under her eyes. Tell the officials to hurry and give you that discharge so you can get home post-haste. Your wife and daughter are powerful lonesome for you. The next day, a letter from R.G. arrived that said his discharge was still uncertain. He hoped he'd be back by Christmas, but so far he'd had no word that it would happen. Agnes was not pleased. To say that the news in your letter yesterday morning was disappointing is putting it very mildly, she wrote back. But that's the army. She'd finally gotten the house in decent shape, and they had money now, too. That day, she'd gone off to the tobacco market with Argy's father for the latest sale. They'd done well, had brought in $1,129. And Agnes had managed to get the house warm as toast, she said, ever since she'd stubbornly convinced the wood stove, coal fireplace, and oil heater to behave themselves. Another Sunday is almost over, and I am getting more and more impatient for you to be home and spending Sunday and all the other days with your family she told R.G. Yesterday was very cold, damp, and dreary. I'm so anxious to know each and every day's events, and especially with regard to your coming home. I miss you so terribly. It has been such a long, long time since you left me. It will be heavenly to be tight in your arms again, she added. As Christmas approached and R.G.'s discharge was still out of reach, as Agnes balanced her time between attending to the needs of Agnes Gray and working to get the house in shape, she took a moment to step back and look at the little girl her daughter had become. Agnes Gray was still a tiny thing, but there was a good healthy color and shape to her face. And now that she'd gotten over her weariness at the harsh cold on the farm, she'd gained a resilient glow in her eyes. Even compared to other little girls, she was constantly curious. Her big eyes seemed intent upon absorbing the world entire, while she gripped at everything before her, bouncing and eager for anything new. She looks all around, and her little hands fly, was how Agnes described her in a letter to R.G. One thing she still hadn't mentioned to her husband, one thing she was going to keep for herself, was an image that she would hold in her mind for the rest of her life. There was no way to remove it from her memory, and for this reason alone, she had decided never to force it upon R.G., the image that arose, especially late at night, when her nerves were at their worst. The shriveled, diseased, almost lifeless creature that Agnes had seen when she'd been wheeled into the preemie room of the hospital to look at their daughter for the first time. Over the weeks and months that had followed that moment, whenever R.G. had asked for a photo of their little daughter, she'd begged off. Sometimes Agnes had just plain ignored the request. Other times she'd come up with any reason why she wasn't able to get a photo sent his way just yet. She'd been stalling, waiting. And when he'd asked for her to at least send another photo of herself... She'd done the same thing, knowing that the dark bags under her eyes, 
The skeleton pallor of her face and the wrinkled stress lines was not something she wanted him to see. So she'd waited, for weeks, for months, until spring had arrived, when the sunlight had ignited the dust motes in her family's living room like flecks of gold, and Agnes had posed in a fine new dress with her smiling baby girl in her arms, Agnes Gray sucking on a tiny bottle. Her sisters had snapped the camera over and over, and later Agnes had chosen the best few to send to him. R.G. wrote back, saying, The pictures were so sweet. The one with the bottle was so especially sweet. She sure looks like a little darling. He'd added, I sure wish we could have gotten a few shots when she was so very, very small and still in the hospital. But Agnes knew she had made the right decision. The past was the past. She only wanted to move forward with her life. Now, at the brick house, she'd been busy all the last week polishing the banisters of the stairwell, scrubbing the floors, dusting the ceiling and wiping down the countertops, as if trying to convince him, and herself too, that nothing had changed. But of course, everything had changed. Just a few days before Christmas, 1945, as snow was falling all through the mountains, a Salvation Army Santa Claus stood by the entrance of the bus station in downtown Boone, ringing his bell for donations. Dressed in his fluffy outfit, he called out thanks as people dropped coins in his kettle. Cold air whipped through the bus station's doors whenever someone walked in or out. Agnes felt the chill waft on her bare arms, even though she was standing across the room. Another late snowfall had blown in that night, so she was standing by the window inside the station, looking out as she waited for the bus to arrive. She'd already been waiting so long, her arms were burning from holding Agnes Gray, while snow swirled in the lamppost light on the street. She would have sat down, but she was too nervous. She wasn't even sure what she was waiting for. R.G. had said that tonight might be the night in a letter that had made its way to the farmhouse that morning, saying he'd be discharged and that he'd be setting off by bus from Ohio to North Carolina in a few days. He sent the letter early so she would have time to prepare, but another weather delay meant the letter had taken days to get here, so she'd had to rush that morning to prepare for his arrival, or at least the promise of his arrival. It was especially uncomfortable to wait alone. She knew everyone in the bus station could tell why she was here. They'd all seen her type before these last few months a young woman dressed up far too pretty for any regular old trip to the bus station. And that nervous look on her face, and the way she was constantly glancing out the window, and the little baby in her arms too, only made it more obvious. Scenes like this one had been enacted countless times as more boys came back from overseas. She probably would have seen that Salvation Army Santa Claus glancing her way too, had she not been too shy to look. It occurred to her, as she was standing there looking out at the falling snow, that exactly five years to the day had passed since she and R.G. had met for the first time inside that church in Independence, Virginia, in December of 1940, back when she was just some girl playing the piano, and he was the polite stranger in coat and tie, newly arrived in town. All these years, and yet it felt as if she were meeting him for the first time all over again. She looked out at the street, suddenly aglow, the falling snow illuminated, as a bus pulled into the station. The breath left her body. She felt immediately and horribly strange about how she looked, as if the headlamps of the bus had illuminated all of her flaws. How exactly is a woman supposed to dress when meeting her husband again after more than a year apart? And she wasn't sure what she would say to him. Their first few years as a couple had been mostly long distance anyway, conducted through letters and phone calls, and they'd only been married a short time before he was shipped away. It was hardly incorrect to say they'd spent more time apart than they had together. 
and it hadn't been an easy past year either. So many nights without sleep, so many days sick in bed. Had she changed too much? Had he? Through the window, she watched the bus lurch to a stop, the brakes sighing in the cold winter air, steam clouds rising from beneath its belly of pipes and vents. The door swung open just as Agnes was stepping outside herself with the baby. The cold was harsh on her, but she didn't even feel it. She'd already had goosebumps all the last hour. Standing at the curb, she waited as a stream of passengers disembarked from the bus, men and women, strangers, faceless people who might as well have been see-through. And then, there he was. Snow flurries cascaded in the space between them down the curb. From where she stood, he looked the same as she remembered, only tanner, a bit leaner, his shoulders even broader now from the work on the island. He glowed in the lamppost light. It was a shock how dashing he looked in his uniform. If anyone else was watching her now, Agnes didn't notice. She waited, the baby in her arms, until his eyes fell on her. Then she smiled, without even realizing it. He stepped forward. She watched him move through the light. Apparently, Argy didn't even care about his bags because he let them drop on the ground as he moved toward her. And the moment he reached out to her, the world paused. The snow seemed to stop falling. The people stood still on the sidewalk. The wind fell silent. There was only his body and hers, all the memories of his touch rushing back to her again. They kissed in the flurries under the lamppost light, while the snow cascaded over the mountains behind them. Only when R.G. stepped back, getting a good look at her, did the rest of the world start moving again. Agnes didn't know what to say. Standing in the falling snow, her cheeks red and streaked with tears, she managed to whisper, Agnes Gray, meet your daddy. And she handed the baby over to him. In the coming days and weeks, Agnes knew she would have to learn to live with this man again. His weight and warmth in the bed beside her, his toothbrush in the bathroom, his muddy boots by the door. There would be a cold winter ahead of them. The farm would need to be fixed up, and the working schedule restructured under their guidance after so many years away. They would need to find work for themselves, too, would need to decide how they would live for the next month, the next year, the next decade. They would care for their baby, and perhaps more babies would come. All the while, they would have to get used to the small things about each other, some remembered, some forgotten, and some not yet learned at all. They would build a life together, in other words. But even now, before all that, Agnes knew in her heart that she would remember this moment for the rest of her life. R.G. smiling as he took the baby and held her against his chest, and the little girl gazing up at him, her big eyes taking in the features of the unfamiliar man now holding her. Agnes Gray looked so healthy, so happy, None of the people strolling around them in the bus station could have possibly known the pain this little girl had gone through. The pain Agnes herself had gone through on those dark winter nights, in quiet, alone. No one would have thought anything other than how sweet and simple a moment this was. And for now, for her, that was enough. Well, R.G. said as the baby curled against him, it certainly is nice to finally meet you, Agnes Gray. With his bag over his shoulder, he carried their daughter, and Agnes walked alongside him back through the bus station. They stepped outside into the parking lot, passing by Santa Claus, who rang his bell and wished them all a Merry Christmas. 
Then they got in the car together, as a family, and drove down the snow-covered roads toward home. The End Afterward By 1952, the U.S. Army's Special Hydroponics Branch grew more than 8 million pounds of fresh produce a year. Commercial hydroponics farms began to appear all over the United States in the decades that followed, especially in Florida. Hydroponics has been utilized in locales as diverse as Africa and Antarctica, South America and the Middle East, Asia and Europe, and even in outer space. NASA has experimented with hydroponically grown produce in the International Space Station through its controlled ecological life support systems. The global hydroponics market size was estimated at $2.6 billion as of 2021.